Gee, I, I, um, so much uh, to say, so little time. <laughs> uh, I, um, I, I, there was something I was going to say, and now it's completely slipped my mind. I guess a lot of you, I think, are probably in California, so we've been uh, living through the deluge, the uh, the ark, uh, or the the flood. Um, and I find it really depressing. I don't know about you guys. Like it's really it's hard to stay sane in this in this weather. Uh, and so uh, I was like, I got to give a talk tonight. I have to. I'm I'm supposed to. I need therapy. <laughs> so it's going to be my therapy tonight, folks. You know, being with you is therapy. Uh, being able to talk about the Dharma and talk about recovery is therapeutic. So hopefully it's good for all of us um, to get together and, you know, take care of ourselves. Um, I've been, uh, yeah, my book, Living Kindness, came out. It's actually like a re-release, but it's the like the major publisher release on December 27th. And, and so I, I've been, you know, sort of giving talks around some of the topics there. And, I, and I'm also kind of developing a course I'm going to offer online. Um, and uh, today I was working on the second, like the second week, I think it's going to be an eight week course and which I th- is going to be mostly the second week will be mostly about self-compassion. So, um, so I thought I would kind of get around to that. I, I, I kind of want to somehow blend step one and, and sort of, and talk a little bit about relapse or trying to, you know, hold things together, uh, not relapse, um, and uh, and how that kind of fits with self-compassion. We'll see how that goes. Um, yeah, I, I guess the, the thing I also was thinking about as, as we were starting and I was watching people coming in, like, um, you know, that, that, uh, this is kind of the time of the month when people's uh, new year's resolutions start to fade. <laughs> so uh, you guys are all, I don't know if it's a resolution to be here, but I, I presume it's some kind of an intention to uh, maintain your, your recovery and your meditation and all of that. And uh, so I'm glad, I'm glad people are here. Um, as I say, you know, this, I think ordinarily January I is it can be a difficult time in the northern hemisphere for people who have seasonal affective disorder which uh I figure everybody in California that's why we came here was to get away from seasonal affective disorder so um so yeah just to to practice together uh and to just keep going uh, I keep looking at like the 10 day forecast on my phone uh, to see when the rain is going to stop. And it really does look like a week from now, it might start to be normal California weather. I get back to a nice drought uh, now that we've got the reservoirs all full. I can take some time off. All right. Enough of my blathering. I, I hope uh, you're all ready to meditate. Um, we will, uh, 
we'll sit for about 30 minutes and and I usually talk for about the first half and then I let people sit with their own practice. Um, My intention being to get people started uh, with the instructions, but also then to allow you to to work with your own internal practice rather than having me in your ear the whole time. So I hope that's an effective approach. Um, So just starting by settling into a, a meditation posture that works for you, that's supportive of both calming and clarity. This is one of the first challenges of meditation is to to find a way to sit that supports your practice. Relaxing is clearly an important part of meditating, but if we relax too much or just get foggy, that's not helpful. So we have to balance the relaxation with uh, energy and clarity. Well, that's where we suggest an upright posture. And you can close your eyes or just lower your gaze. You know, with the amount of time a lot of us spend on online and on Zoom these days, it's, it's nice to take a break from staring at the screen. And we're turning our attention inward to the feelings in the body, the emotional feelings, to the mental experience, the thoughts and energies that appear in the mind. And especially we're turning our attention to the breath. Feeling the body breathing. I like to kind of get a general sense of my body, my presence before really trying to focus fully on the breath. In that process, you can take some time to feel the different sensations in the body and to release any tension or tightness, softening the belly, relaxing the jaw, letting the shoulders settle. Just have a a feeling of embodiment, of presence. 
sitting still, just being. So much of our time is spent doing, thinking, trying to accomplish things. It can be difficult to shift out of that mode so deeply conditioned and culturally conditioned. That feeling that we need to be productive all the time. So just to let that go for a little while, just to hang out. Nothing to achieve, nothing to prove. And noticing how you are feeling right now. It's the kind of mind state or mood that you brought to this group tonight. Not judging that or trying to control that, just feeling What's there with the openness, with the kindness? Kind of receptive attitude. And then letting the attention gather around the breath, either feeling the breath at the nostrils or the belly. At the nostrils, we feel the touch of air coming in and out. At the belly, we're aware of the movement rising and falling. Whichever is most useful, whichever one you're drawn to. Breathing in, breathing out.
it's natural for the mind to wander, for thoughts to take our attention away. This is integrated into our meditation that we we notice when the mind wanders and then we gently come back. There is effort involved, but not striving. We're not clinging to the breath. We can see in our own experience what the Buddha describes in the Four Noble Truths. See the way the grasping of the mind creates a kind of agitation or disturbance can be felt in the body or felt in the mind. And then we see how letting go of that mental activity, that grasping, really frees us from that cycle. That by applying mindfulness, loving kindness to our experience. It can be transformed just in that moment.
It's uh, so important that we keep a, an attitude of kindness when we meditate. Otherwise, it can turn into another struggle to achieve something or to, to do something right, to perfect. So not only are we letting go of the grasping of the thoughts, but we're also letting go of the judging that might go along with the thoughts that rise up. Thoughts are so natural, they're just what the mind is trained to do, what makes us think that we can just turn them off. We see in this process the limits of our actual control of our mind. what we could say is powerlessness in the 12-step language. Not that we have any, not that we don't have any influence over the mind, but that there's a lot of things it does that we cannot control. And so again, we let go. And trying to find that balance between effort and letting go is key to the practice.
Right. I spent a lot of time yesterday watching videos of Jeff Beck, this guitarist who just died and was one of my favorites, probably many guitarists' favorite guitarists. <laughs> uh, so I was kind of thinking about putting a link to a video in here, but, uh, you know, uh, if you like watching amazing guitar players, just go on YouTube and put in Jeff Beck. Um, and I, I guess that that's part of the sort of mood <laughs> these days. Um, losing people, um, but let's not go there. Let's uh, let me talk a little bit about uh, what I intended. Which you know, I'm I'm in a fortunate position that that strangers email me and ask me for help. That's an amazing gift, really, in the world uh, to have people trust you just because of something they've heard you say or read. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that, you know, the big challenge for a lot of people who are struggling is just how, how do we, you know, come into recovery? How do we get sober or how do we stop our addictive behavior, whatever it's around? And, um, you know, I don't really have the answer for that. If you know, if I did, I'd probably be wealthy. <laughs> I, you know, how, how does it happen? You know, it's it's. There are myths uh, that you find, uh, particularly in Alcoholics Anonymous. There's mythology, sort of. I would call it mythology, but. Um, I don't. I don't really know how how that happens. I think I think that people there has to be a strong desire for something different. You know, there has to be a real a real longing uh, for something different uh, because letting go and even letting go isn't even maybe a good term for what we have to do with an addiction. Interrupting. So a deeply embedded behavior or form of thinking uh, interrupting an addiction uh, means interrupting a very powerful force which is what the you know the 12 steps are built you know the, begin by talking about power and and uh, you know and suggesting the this higher power which um you know, obviously, I, I don't interpret that as a, in a theistic way exactly. Um, but there's, you know, we have this term powerlessness, and it's it, it's a very it's a tricky word. Um, and you know, I've written about it and tried to contrast powerless uh, from helpless. And to, to say that we're not helpless, you know, we have some agency, and and I know some people get very turned off by this idea. Well, I'm not powerless, right? You're not. Um, 
the you know the twelve steps say we're powerless about specific things about right, from our you know powerless over alcohol or powerless over our addiction or <coughs> whatever the substance is for the behavior. You know, but there's this great challenge that I was talking about during the meditation of how do I engage in an effort to change that if it isn't driven by grasping, that isn't creating more suffering. You know, so, so naturally, you know, if we have the desire to change, uh, there's something that we don't like, you know. And so, when uh, putting it in sort of Buddhist terms, there's aversion, right? I am averse to, you know, I feel negatively toward this behavior or this addiction that I have. But if we turn that into aversion to ourself, or hatred to ourself. I'm a bad person. I need to become a good person. Then we're trapped. You know, then we're trapped in another kind of destructive cycle that doesn't, doesn't work. You know, you can do it for a while. You know, you can suppress for a while because that's what we're talking about then. We're talking about this suppression. I'm going to fight off this part of me, you know, this energy that I can't do. I'm going to hold it off, you know, white knuckle it, as we say. And that's why, you know, January, when people make their resolution to stop drinking or whatever the thing, they, you know, I got to stop the sugar or the pornography or whatever the thing is. When it's a resolution like that, like this is something I need to cut it out, cut off my arm, you know, cut off my, this, the lobotomize myself. It, it it doesn't work, you know. It, it, in fact, it can be even worse. There's a term learned from some addiction researchers called the the abstinence violation effect. <laughs> the abstinence violation effect is when you suppress a behavior without dealing with the underlying energies, causalities, whether or and without providing a healthy, you know, replacement, so that you're just suppressing it, and eventually, and this was around food addiction that these researchers were doing. Eventually, you break the abstinence, and you go to the other extreme. You you binge, and and I know people with eating disorders are very familiar with this this type of behavior, but it's very common with alcoholics as well, you know, who, who try to suppress their, their, uh, alcoholism or their drinking or drugging. So that means we have to bring some different kind of an attitude to this process, which is why I said that I was going to talk about self-compassion. You know, that if there isn't kindness inherent 
in this process of recovery. It's not recovery, <laughs> frankly, you know, you're, because recovery means that we're healing, you know, and healing without kindness isn't healing. It's not, you know, it's like surgery, you know, I mean, that surgery could be kind, but, you know, it's more like cutting you up, right? Cutting you open and, okay, I'll sew you back up, but I haven't really, you know, healed you. So, self-compassion, you know, this is a, it's a beautiful idea. And it has its own inherent risks, right? Because this, again, comes back to this question of effort. Okay, uh, um, what does it mean to be compassionate towards myself? What does it mean to be kind toward myself? You know, it can be, oh, you know, I'm just going to let myself have a bowl of ice cream tonight, right? But that can become, oh, well, I might as well eat the whole pint, you know, kind of thing. And all of a sudden, what what looked like, oh, I'm going to do some, have a little comfort food turns into a binge, right? Like, this is the, the line we tread. And, and as addicts, a lot of times we don't trust ourselves to do something nice for ourselves. I mean, what, why did... Why do we drink and take drugs if that was your if if you had an addiction around that in the first place? Part of it was like, oh, it's been a really rough day. I need a drink, you know, right? I'm stressed out. I'll roll a joint, you know, that'll chill me. It could look like you were being kind to yourself, and there are people we've heard of them, you know, who can do that. Who can like have a glass of wine after work and relax, and that's. That's it, right? But, you know, for us, it's like the glass of wine becomes the bottle of wine and then becomes like I need a line of Coke to go with that. And, you know, really a joint would be good. And, and uh, you know, just to give me a little buzz. And, you know, three days later, you're like, forget to go to work. And so, so we have to learn, you know, this is a lot of our recovery does imply healing, but it also implies a kind of recovery of uh, you know it, it's it's like we have to reparent ourselves right because a, a, a skillful parenting is compassionate and kind but not indulgent I don't know if you've ever heard of that like if you know I, I didn't have that kind of parenting and uh, but you know, there's this balance, right? In in the in the sutta on loving kindness, the Buddha says he, he compares loving kindness to a mother, but he says even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. And I've I've really investigated and interrogated this this phrase. A mother protects with her life. This isn't. This isn't cozy, you know, rocking me in your arms, mothering. This is fierce mothering, right? And and as I talk about it in my book, Living Kindness, 
when we when you when you say oh loving kindness is like mother love well your first thought is oh that's lovely and sweet and soft but but then if you think about what a mother's love is really like it's it's not like that all the time you know oftentimes and and a good you know healthy positive parenting is there's a, a fierceness to it there's a there's discipline to it there's protectiveness there can be anger you know i mean of course you know children <laughs> tend to not behave and so so if if we never got parented but we need to like learn how to parent ourselves you know going to learning about self-compassion is a good place to start and and trying to get some idea of what that would mean for us in our own lives how how could i be compassionate toward myself without indulging myself without you know slipping into the abstinence violation effect you know uh, and this is where the wholeness the you know the holistic qualities of the dharma and i would say recovery you know i kind of think of them as almost synonyms comes in that we we realize that there isn't this simple formula okay here's what here's what it means to be self-compassionate just do this and do this and do this it's this you know, full court press, as I like to kind of call the the process. Uh, you know, in basketball, um, a full full court press is when the other team brings the ball in at the end of the court, and instead of just letting them dribble up to half court before you start to defend them, you cover them right as soon as they bring the ball in, and you're you're covering them all the time. You know, uh, and that's kind of how we have to approach. Uh, recovery if we're addicts and and so it takes this range of practices uh, and and behaviors you know and I, you know I, I want to say it starts with but I'm not sure there's one thing it starts with so I'm just gonna talk about some of the things that are involved in this and we can think of it, you know, in, in Buddhist terms, if we use the the three forms of karma. The three forms of karma are thoughts, words, and actions. So we think of karma, I think most people think of karma as an external thing. But actually karma, which just means action, starts with the mind. So our practice of mindfulness is a vital step in any kind of practice of loving, of, of compassion, of self-compassion. Because the harm that we do ourselves starts with and often is most really insidious in the mind. And it's one of the things that's quite shocking when we start to meditate is to find out what's in there, right? Wow, those are the those are the thoughts I have. Wow, what's going on with that? And it can take a while 
to learn how to be kind to ourselves in meditation. Because we typically bring the same approach to meditation that we bring to the rest of our life, which is, I got to learn to do this right. (laughs) And if I'm not doing it right, I'm wrong. (laughs) If I'm not good, I'm bad. So, you know, I'm meditating. Oh, you know, I'm learning to meditate. This is great. Okay, breathing in, breathing out. Okay, yeah, I can I can do that. I can feel my breath and then then I'm off, right? My mind just goes off. I'm spacing out on like work, you know, vacation, uh, memories, stuff. Oh, then I realize I'm thinking, right? Well, what's the first thing you think after you <laughs> after you realize you're thinking? Oh, uh, I blew it or I'm doing it wrong or I can't why can't I what's why can't I stop thinking? I've got to learn to stop thinking, etc. You know, the list of self-judgments. Well, if you start to get the uh, learn the game, <laughs> if I can call it that, you start to realize, oh wait, that judgment is another thought. It's just a thought, and it's and it's more harm. Because what I've been hearing from the the teacher is thoughts of desire and aversion are hindrances, and that's how we create suffering. So if I'm having a judgmental thought about myself, then I'm creating suffering. I should let that go. There's only one problem there. I should let it go. So, oops, I fell into that. So the next thing you know, this is where it really gets interesting. I'm sitting... Ah, I'm judging. Okay, come back to breath. Breathing in, breathing out. Oh, look, another judgment. Okay. Let's come back to breath. Okay, I'm okay now. Okay, good. Jeez, another judgment. What is wrong with... Why am I judging so much? Now, I'm judging the judging. Oh, boy. And you start to, you realize that there's this infinite regression that can happen. I don't know what that means, but I like that expression. It sounds sounds like something, I think that's what it is. It's like feedback on the guitar, right? You put it in front of the speaker, and the sound from the speaker goes into the guitar, and the sound from the guitar then goes back into the speaker. And if you're good at, if you're a Jeff Beck, you can use that, but most of us just make noise. So we start to have this feedback. We say, okay, let it go. So then we start. We realize there's this thing we have to bring in to this process. Acceptance. Non-ill will. Non-fight, not fighting with our own mind. Okay. All right. We're going to put that aside for a moment. <laughs> we might have to come back to it. So this is our our meditation practice of of compa- of self-compassion and i would say that acceptance is kind of the doorway into that you know because the idea of self-compassion can be a little bit like oh i'm supposed to just really love my okay i can't do that like <laughs> that's too much don't ask me to like hug myself okay uh, but i can accept myself i mean maybe you can that'd be great and you know everybody can do that. It's nice to do that, but in ter- in terms of sort of a a standard uh, 
non-stressful, non-challenging thing to just accept, oh, thoughts, okay, judgments, aversion, that I can accept it all. That's really, to me, where the shift happens in the meditation. And you're, and you're really moving out of the grasping. You're not forcing it. You're not suppressing it. You're not pushing it away. You're not judging it. You're just saying, this is what is. This is, this is okay. I can accept this. So I think that's the sort of doorway into self-compassion with meditation. So then we have the other two forms of karma. So in speech, this is a really interesting place to watch how you use speech in ways that uh, are self-judgmental. And just to notice, what do you say about yourself? One of the best things to notice, if you, if you ever have the, the good fortune to have someone thank you for something, <laughs> uh, notice how you respond. You know, do you respond by belittling their thanks and say and suggesting to them that you're not it really was nothing what you did for them? You know, or that, you know, they they're they come in your house. I love your house. Oh, it's you know, it's a mess right now. Right. Or, you know, I like the way your hair is. Oh, really? I don't know. It's just. You know, just that, like, you know, just cutting things down, right? What that does, by the way, side sidebar here, is it interrupts the flow of of karma, of positive karma. If someone gives you something and you refuse it, then you're you're harming both of you because that person was trying to give you something, and instead of receiving it gracefully and enjoying that gift you're saying no so that they don't get the good karma of giving <laughs> so they don't feel good about it and you don't feel good about it it's it's a lose-lose so gratitude but more you know more obviously we talk about self-compassion with action you know this process and ha- and and here's where you know it comes in to our addiction, right? And you know, I I hear from a fair number of people whose addiction is not um, a substance, which that it's not drugs or alcohol, and sometimes it's food, but I, that's really sort of a separate a separate category that falls under. You know, where sex and food are very similar in terms of their addictions because they're things that are sort of inherently involved in our lives that we can't just, that we can't stop eating and we can't stop being sexual beings. You know, um, you know, we're, we're get, we have our bodies and, and then, you know, then we have the, I don't know what the language is anymore. What we, you know, whether it's codependence, but the things that people go to Al-Anon for, you know, relationship issues. And, and in this, these areas, there, there isn't a simple just stop. And, and that's where, 
I think those areas around codependence, around sex and around food, we we need more sex and love, I should say, because I, I don't know, sex addiction is a strange term, you know. But that these are areas where I think we need more self-compassion. Like, I don't need to, an act of self-compassion for me around drugs and alcohol is don't do it, right? It's not compassionate for me to say, oh, I'll just take one hit off this joint, you know, just as of, out of compassion for myself. No, because it just doesn't work, right? But it's so hard around, I mean, food is such a, perfect example of this it's so hard around food because you know people typically the, the people that i know typically make you know vows or that you know they have a commitment to eat in a certain way and then there's a slip and there tends to be a lot more slipping and what happens around that slip then is where the the self-compassion has to come in you know and and it's true of slips around drugs and alcohol too, you know. It doesn't do any good to say, oh, you know, I got drunk, like, I'm just a loser, you know, uh, I hate myself. You know, we know where that goes. I mean, that's why, you know, one of the leading causes of death for addicts is suicide. You know, which is just the end of the, you know, sort of the end result of lacking all compassion for yourself. To say that I'm not worthy of being alive, uh, it's awful, you know. So, so even, you know what, I've been sober for 37 years and, uh, and I, I am not, I don't believe that I could never have a drink again. I believe that could happen. You know, it would definitely harm my career. (laughs) Although maybe I could write a book about, you know, relapse and the 12 steps. (laughs) No, but, uh, you know, uh, what I mean is that I really, uh, I don't think that anybody who who slips or relapses is a failure, you know. I think that what you are is an addict when you do that. And how, and how should an addict be treated? How do you treat addicts? How, you know, how, how do you feel about don't you want don't you treat them with compassion? Don't you want to be kind when you have a friend who's suffering? Don't you want to be kind to them? Don't you try to be kind to them? And yet what do we, how do we treat ourselves? When we come up short, whether it's in our meditation or, you know, in our just our daily lives or or around our addiction, do we do we treat ourselves with the same kindness we would just treat a friend? So there is this, you know, idea of of friendliness, and and actually it's one of the translations of the word meta, which we usually say is loving kindness. Um, one of the translations is loving friendliness, you know, just being friendly to yourself. I think it's a really helpful thing, again, to step out of some of the confusion around, I don't know if confusion, but 
but like, well, what does it mean to be self-compassionate? Do I have to like feel all this love for myself? No. I mean, I, feelings, you know, feelings come and go. It's, but, but watch how you treat yourself, you know? Can you just be kind to yourself? Um, you know, in, in Living Kindness, I, I finally kind of decided that for me, the word love, the most valuable uh, way to think of love is as care. So if I care for myself, then it's self-care. And that's not really complicated. Um, I mean, it, it can be, especially early in recovery, it can, it can be complicated. And, and I, I think that, you know, the combination of a whole lot of therapy and a whole lot of sponsoring in my early, and when I say my early recovery, I'd say my first decade of recovery, um, you know, helped me to, to be able to learn what it meant, what self-care meant. Um, you know, that, that reparenting. But, you know, getting, getting rest, eating in a healthy way, without being obsessed, um, meditating, you know, and community. I mean, this is like, you know, uh, the the sangha, the fellowship, whatever you call it, is just a foundational aspect of this process. So showing up here, the fact that you folks, I'm going to say, it says there's 53 people, so I'm going to subtract me and Ileana and say that you 51 people are acting out of self-compassion right now by being here. And I think it's also really, really important <laughs> to recognize when we are acting wisely and kindly toward ourselves. Oh, to say, yeah, I'm showing up. I'm taking care of myself. To feel good about that, right? And this is one of the, you know, it's actually a principle of Buddhism. That the Buddha says that you should take joy in skillful behaviors. And he says there are three moments when you can enjoy a skillful action. Before you do it, while you are doing it, and after you do it, when you reflect on it. So this is like a, a huge piece, uh, we know, of recovery. But if you look at the, the Buddhist tradition, it's a huge piece of that too. The Sangha is one of the three gems, one of the three jewels that the Buddha talks about. And it, it's, it's really under-emphasized in Western Buddhism. I think, I think it's become more commonly acknowledged and appreciated. But when I started to meditate, when I started to do Buddhist retreats, Sangha was just like a, something offhand. It was all about come and meditate and get, you know, have, be enlightened and then go home. You kind of like, okay, you know, and, uh, you know, there wasn't really any support outside the, the meditation retreats or, you know, you'd go to a meditation class and you would sit there and listen to the teacher and then you would go home. But there wasn't like a 
communal experience very much. And and whenever people ask me for help around their struggles, one of the things I say is, you know, get to meetings, get to meditation groups, find a community, you know, or a friend, you know. It's another real failing of our own culture, you know, the... the uh, the um, particularly American idea of individual individuality and you know the the rugged individualism and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and all that nonsense that as if um, as if anything really happens by one per, by one person I mean we're so dependent upon each other. It's just a complete... We live in this interdependent world. And, um, and, and somehow we turn it into, no, it's about me. <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, very unfortunate. Um, so... You know, when we talk about this whole kind of picture of recovery and self-compassion, there, as I, you know, I think I said, there isn't this sort of formula. You know, and this is always what's challenging, right? I, th I think, you know, the thing that draws people to, like, fundamentalist, you know, religions and you know, absolutist views is the idea that all the answers are contained there and I don't have to make decisions. I don't have to think about it. Um, and, you know, and, and Buddhism is kind of the opposite of that. You know, Buddhism is like, you know, you got to be present. You got to be present right now. And you got to tune in. You've got to, you know, Cultivate your own intuition, your own wisdom. And, you know, it, and then you need to respond out of that, out of that moment. Now, I, I realize, it sounds like I just contradicted myself. It's interesting, <laughs> you know, that, that we're a community. But, you know, I mean, this is just a piece of it, right? We, our practice is to cultivate this intuition you know and wisdom within ourselves but it's always held in this context of and we could say in the in terms of the three refuges that's the buddha that's cultivating our own inner buddha but that's held in the context of the dharma and the sangha so whatever wisdom or intuition i think i'm developing i look at it through this lens of dharma so I need to understand the Buddhist teaching, because I'm not a Buddha. I'm not going to, you know, be able to have know everything. But if I understand the Dharma and I cultivate mindfulness and and wisdom, then I am able to make decisions, make choices. And then, of course, this third piece, the Sangha, 
gives me a, a support system and also a place uh, to find more wisdom and and guidance. You know, it's one of the interesting things you see the Buddha saying in the suttas when he when he talks about people trying to sort of develop their own wisdom. There's a famous sutta, the Kalama Sutta, where people are like, well, who should we listen to? And he says, well, you know, you you have to, uh, you know, you have to cultivate your own wisdom and see where these teachings are going that someone's offering. But you should also always check with another, what he calls a wise person, you know, and, and obviously in in recovery, that's kind of what a sponsor is supposed to be. It doesn't always work that way, but um, you know, and friends and and partners and teachers, and you know, it's it's that thing of not assuming that you have all the answers. Always this balance, you know, it's something that I find uh, myself always drawn back to when I'm talking about any of these things about. Buddhism about recovery is this balance. There's, I just, uh, as soon as you start to overemphasize one thing, you find yourself, oh, wait, there's too much of that. Oh, I need to bring that back. You know, acceptance and kindness. Oh, I've just gotten lazy now. I need to enforce, I need to develop some discipline. Oh, but discipline, uh, you know, while I'm getting too rigid in my discipline, I need to loosen that up. So there's uh, this, this challenge. Uh, the challenge of of finding balance in in this whole process and and it's it's why there isn't a single answer that that each moment we need to see what's what's a wise response to this moment you know i was thinking about the expression one day at a time today and how I think the common understanding of that, and it's something we say to someone, especially if they're struggling to get, you know, to develop any, sustain any recovery, well, just take it one day at a time, you know. But it occurred to me that another aspect of that is that I really, I really need to deal with today fully. I need to do all the stuff I need to do today. I can't skip a day of my meditation or my, you know, trying to be compassionate or my taking care of myself or being kind to other people. It's so in the same way that, I mean, just in contrast, I only have to get through today, but at the same time, I have to I really have to engage this day. I really have to be committed to this day and to my practice this day because, and this is where, again, I see people struggle so much with trying to develop a meditation practice. And it, you know, it's done one day at a time, you know, and, and I, but I, it's one day at a time in this sense that, Today I must I must be responsible today. I can't put off my practice for, till tomorrow, you know. And 
And when I'm, when I'm tempted to do that, to really say, well, what's going on? What am I, why don't I want to meditate today? Or why can't I make the time? What is it? And, and I mean, I'll say for myself that I, I do meditate every day, virtually every day. And I don't always enjoy it. And sometimes it seems like a waste of time. <laughs> and sometimes it just seems like I'm all I'm doing is sitting there in the chair, not moving, but all the rest of it is just my mind. You know, like half the time is just gone. But if I don't do that, and then the next day, and the next day, and the next day, you know, it's just about showing up. And this brings me back to this idea of powerlessness. I can't control my mind. I can work at it. I can make effort. I can bring self-compassion to my practice. And I'll sit down and I'll, okay, I'm going to meditate. And sometimes it's beautiful and there's a flow and sometimes there isn't. But I don't, it's not my job to decide, oh, well, it's not worth it. You know, <laughs> that's not it, right? Uh, so this is that the fierce side, the 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 mother that protects me, you know, that says, "Yeah, no, you you really need to you, you need to eat your oatmeal, you know, you, need, you know, take your vitamins, like you know, do your meditation, you know, and just you know, just show up." So, so I hope this this topic and these words are of of help to people tonight and. Um, I'll I'll open it up and see if there's any comments or questions anybody has. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.